welcome to The Behavioural Investor. Today we've got a special guest, Nick McCullum. He's from the Passive Investor Fund. So Nick, welcome. Could you just give us a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I'd just like to say thanks for having me on the podcast. It's uh, exciting to be here with you guys. I've worked in professional investment management, I guess, my entire career. So I started out working in fundamental equity research. So I was doing like deep research on individual stocks, trying to figure out sources of competitive advantage and whether companies were, had good growth prospects and what their management teams were like. So that was, I guess, my first job. And what that kind of taught me was that picking individual stocks can be fun for people, but I think behaviorally, it's like a really hard way to generate long-term wealth and, and index investing is kind of a better strategy for people because there's less volatility, there's more diversification and just less opportunities for you to get scared out of your investments and sell them. So that's kind of was kind of my first job. And then after I was done there, I joined the team here at Passive. So uh, we make software that's as easy as possible for you to manage your own passive investment portfolio. So the way it works is it connects directly to your uh, brokerage account. It allows you to set a target portfolio. It allows you to rebalance with one click into your target portfolio. And then it sends you email notifications whenever you've drifted away from your target portfolio so that you can log in and rebalance back into it with one click. So that's kind of where I started and what I'm doing today, I guess. So one of the areas that really got us interested in the potential of investing and in particular that, uh, as you say, that um, passive style of investing was analysis that we did, which looked at in a case study, if a person was to invest approximately $35,000 a year and keep that um, investment going each year, so continuing to pay uh, $35,000 into an index fund and achieve the average returns that indexes have been able to achieve, but also keep that going through multiple generations. Over a, a roughly 100-year period, you'd end up with a portfolio worth approximately $1 billion. Um, that, so that would span across multiple generations. It would um, um, require a little bit of overlap between each of the generations in their investment, but uh, achieving $1 billion and having that perspective on investment outside of just your own um, selfish needs was something that interested Will and myself and essentially generating or building up a dynasty. So that was one of the initial podcast episodes which we explored as an area that we, we found quite attractive. From your perspective and, and from the passive tool that you've developed, how do you think that that could help contribute to investors that want to achieve long-term growth and long-term investment goals? I think one of the most important parts of investing is trying to the extent possible to reduce your investing fees. So a lot of traditional investment vehicles charge, you know, one to 2% of assets under management as their fee each year. So what that means for anyone who's unfamiliar is that if you have $100,000 invested in this fund and it charges a 1% fee, you'll pay $1,000 every year to the investment manager so that it can help them cover their expenses for managing the fund. Now, that's a, a pretty big fee as far as investment management goes. And you know, a fee like 1% or 2% may not sound like a lot on the surface, but if you pay that for your whole investment lifetime, it'll be hundreds of thousands of dollars by the time you're done because that $1,000 will grow every year as your portfolio grows. So uh, passive as a tool is primarily designed to help investors save time and money. We're not really in the business of helping investors generate greater returns. Instead, uh, we try to empower investors so that they can invest in the lowest cost investment vehicles available to them, which would be 
uh, index ETFs instead of index mutual funds or active mutual funds or anything of the sort. So our tool is designed to help people get invested in low cost index ETFs and just stay invested there for the longest time horizon possible. Okay, so it does map on to, I guess, the point of the podcast. If someone was trying to faithfully carry out what this compounding sheet tells people to do, what you're presenting here could uh, assist people to actually reach that goal. So did you, were you involved in, in founding Passive? Was I, Did you say you recently joined? Yeah, so the, the story there is actually pretty interesting. Passive was co-founded by two men, Brendan Wood and Brendan Lee Young. Uh, Brendan Wood kind of originally developed the prototype of the software to solve a real problem that he was having when managing his own investment portfolio. So he was trying to manage his own retirement account. He was trying to manage his wife's retirement account. And then he was also trying to manage two education savings accounts for his kids as well. And each of those accounts had a different target portfolio because they had different objectives. So for his kids, he wanted them to be mature in about 18 years after they were born. And for his retirement account, Brendan was pretty young when he first built Passive. So he had you know many decades before he needed to draw down his retirement portfolio. So each of those four accounts had different objectives and a different asset allocation because of that. So to keep track of all of this and to try to make sure that his portfolio was on track for the long run, he built a complicated spreadsheet where he would put in all of the account holdings and his contributions and it would calculate what he needed to buy or sell to stay on track. And that did the trick, but it was insanely tedious and just really boring and, and a lot involved a lot of manual labor, a lot of manual Microsoft Excel work. So that was where the idea for passive came to be. Now the reason, or I guess the way that I got involved in passive organizations that Brendan Wood, so the developer and founder who first built the initial prototype, uh, he went to university on the same scholarship as I did, although a few years before at least. Uh, and we met kind of through the scholarship alumni network. I worked in finance and he worked in finance. So we always had a good rapport because of that. And then when the opportunity came for me to join the passive team in 2019, I kind of jumped at the opportunity because I was looking for a change and I was really excited about the product that they were building. We've all got some ridiculous spreadsheet that we labor over. <laughs> I think most of us have probably thought, you know, if only we could turn it into an app. So it's nice to hear that someone's successfully done that. All right. So we've heard then in your answer a little bit about what inspired the platform. So what is the thing that users can't do themselves due to behavioral factors specifically, which passive assists them to do? I would say the easiest way to describe that is to just say, stay the course. So passive, the whole idea of our platform is that you'll invest a certain amount of time upfront, setting up your target portfolio and getting your, I guess, portfolio specifications all nailed down. And once that's done, your portfolio will essentially be on autopilot for the rest of your life. All that you have to tweak is uh, rebalancing your portfolio from time to time. And then uh, just modifying your contributions to that portfolio. If you get raises or if you get pay decreases or you know, lifestyle changes that require you to change how much you want to contribute to your investment accounts. So what we really enable people to do is invest with a really long-term time horizon and save time and money along the way. Have you read any analysis that shows that staying the course, as you say, um, achieves better outcomes than if you allow a certain portion of your portfolio just to, to keep its legs and keep growing? Do you know what I mean? Um, so has, has there been any research done that you're aware of that shows that that constant rebalancing of getting that, getting the investment portfolio to those certain limits or that certain balance that you want is more beneficial in terms of outcome than if you were to just you know, set them up at the start and let them continue to grow as they would. 
Yeah. So basically the whole idea of you want to sell some of your winners to buy some of your losers over time and kind of stay. Yeah. That's basically what passive uh, enables, uh, enables users to do. So the way that that kind of rebalancing engine and the rebalancing calculations work is that we rely on a metric called portfolio accuracy. So that's just a measure that compares how close your actual portfolio is to your target portfolio. And when that portfolio accuracy number falls below another related metric that we call drift threshold. So when your portfolio accuracy is below your drift threshold, then you get an email that prompts you to log in and rebalance. So to just give you an example to help like with the understanding of it, if your drift threshold is 90% and your portfolio accuracy falls below that 90% threshold, then you'll get an email that says, hey, your portfolio has drifted. It's time for you to log in and rebalance with one click. So we are big believers in the idea of rebalancing to stay the course over time. And that's kind of the mechanism that we enable our users to do it through. So it's a little bit similar to like a stop loss function in a, in a brokerage firm. Yep. Okay. But you also have the upside as well. Yeah, I would say the difference between a stop loss though is that this trade doesn't actually get executed automatically. Instead, you get an email prompt that kind of prompts you to log in to do it yourself. So all the trades executed through the passive platform are still uh, executed by the user. It's just we'll monitor your account and tell you when they need to get done. If people do want to use it, what fees and how would that work? What payment arrangement would, would happen? Yeah, so we wanted our fee structure to be like as simple and as easy to understand as possible because we recognize that transparency is not always something that's super present in the financial services industry. So to kind of fix that problem, our pricing is very simple. There's two different ways that you can use passive. There's a free version and a paid version. The free version is uh, free as its name implies, and that gives you access to a limited feature set within the passive app. The paid version is uh, 99 US dollars a year, and that's just paid with your credit card. We don't take any fees out of your brokerage account or anything like that. It's just paid with your credit card, just like any other software product. How long has it been up and running for? Yeah, the initial prototype of Passive was launched in April 2017. I think we incorporated in September of 2017. So we're coming up on four years now, which is an exciting milestone. Oh, great, great. And it's been going okay? Yeah, yeah, we're super happy. We're up to 17 members now and more than 10,000 people use our software to manage their investment portfolios. That's impressive. So what do investors need to be conscious of if they do want to utilize the passive platform? For example, taxation implications, trading costs uh, due to frequency of resizing and things like that. I would say the main thing that investors need to kind of be aware of before they come to our website to use passive is that uh, in order for you to use passive, you have to, I guess, be comfortable picking your own investments. So we don't recommend your investments for you, nor do we select your portfolio or anything like that. In order to use passive, you have to self-educate to the extent where you feel comfortable selecting your investments yourself. And then once you actually pick your investments, passive is like the best tool for you to actually manage your portfolio over time once you've already picked what you want to be invested in. Okay, so it doesn't come with any sort of cookie cut ETFs or portfolios for novice investors to try out. No, we, uh, we're not in the business of giving financial advice just from like a business model point of view. And also from where we're at in the regulated space, we're actually not permitted to give personalized financial advice. So uh, you have to kind of do your own due diligence to use passive, yes. Looking at the compounding sheet that Ben introduced at the start, is there a passive product in particular that would help clients to reach a billion dollars in three generations, if not faster? Yeah, I mean, I would say we're not super, uh, like I said earlier, I guess we're not in the business of giving financial advice to people or like trying to increase people's returns. But I would say the main way that passive would help users get there is just by reducing their overall overall investment fees. So. If you just think about the 1% fee mutual fund that I talked about earlier, 
on a billion dollar portfolio, that's $10 million a year. So uh, it, yeah, it really adds up as the size of your portfolio grows. And one of the core benefits of using passive is that you can get invested in cheaper funds, save that money and get it added to your investment portfolio over time. Can you say that last sentence again or expand a bit more? Yeah, so all that money that you save on investment fees over time is money that you get to keep and it compounds mm. over time. So if you save yeah. $500 one year, that $500 will grow because yep. of the returns of the fund that you're invested in. Yeah, I see what you mean. And yeah, $10 million is $10 million, regardless if you already have a billion. <laughs> Imagine yeah, having exactly. that extra to compound. Yeah, it always seems a bit um, impudent and crazy to, to talk about this number, but it's mathematically possible. And that's the basis for this podcast. Okay, so note uh, that the sheet takes into account sequence risk, recognizing that it's a non-ergodic system, as pointed out by Lee Coldwell, who was the last uh, interview that we had in the first season. So this produces a massive right skew in total returns. So in Breaking the Market, Matt states that rebalancing more frequently will help investors capture more of the right tail. Is he right about this? And how can passive help investors to rebalance as he instructs? Yeah, so for anyone who's like, doesn't come from a statistics background, basically the right tail just means like all of the distribution of returns that are really, really positive. So if you think about something that has an average return of 5%, the right tail would be like returns of 50%. It's like statistically possible, but it's really, really rare. So uh, I actually think that rebalancing more frequently will probably actually hinder your ability to capture the right tail because in order to get to 50%, you have to pass through 10, 20, 30, 40% first. And if you're rebalancing frequently, you'll probably sell that before it actually reaches 50%. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I'm not terribly strong on the statistics, especially to do with finance. I've done a bit of stats for psych. But I, I think what Matt was trying to get at, I also read, there was an article I I read about how a mathematician would invest. I think it was by a fairly well-established ETF provider. Van Eck, they published like basically a blog post about how a, a mathematician would go about investing. I think the point is with rebalancing that maybe if one of the stocks in your portfolio does really well and it comes to dominate the portfolio, the growth that other smaller ones can have won't be so powerful because they won't have as much capital on them as the stock that's come to dominate your portfolio. So that's my limited understanding of the importance of rebalancing to give yourself the ability to capture the growth of, of every, of all the growth potential of all of the components of your portfolio. I think the other side of the coin is actually equally valuable. So you don't just want to uh, re-enable your smaller holdings to impact your portfolio again, but you also want to uh, prevent yourself from the potential adverse outcome of that large holding falling in value. So it's not just about empowering your potential winners, but it's also about disabling your larger holdings from having an outsized negative impact on your portfolio too. Okay, fair enough. All right. So at, at least what passive gives clients the ability to do, or it, you're notifying them by email, right? Of when a rebalance needs to occur. It's how you're yeah. helping them to keep abreast of, of that. Exactly. Okay. Mentioned the rising importance of ETFs in the investing world. How do they assist investors to maintain a profitable temperament? Yeah, I think ETFs in general have had a number of benefits for self-directed investors. One of the most noble ones, which we already talked about, is um, just lower overall investment fees. So ETFs compared to mutual funds or other investment vehicles are just a lot cheaper. 
And all that money that investors save on fees just goes right into their pocket as improved investment returns. So that's kind of one obvious thing. Another thing is that I think ETFs have given investors a broad ability to get exposure to asset classes that they couldn't get exposure to before. So, you know, if you want to invest in a real estate ETF, you can do that. If you want to invest in a cloud computing ETF, you can do that. If you want to invest in a genomics ETF, you can even do that. And all of those kind of novel asset classes, if you wanted to invest in them before ETFs had kind of gained popularity, you would have had to actually go to, you know, the individual securities that are in that, in that ETF. So previously you would have had to own genomic stocks and go and try to find a bunch of genomic stocks to own or a bunch of cloud computing stocks. So they've given investors access to kind of unprecedented levels of portfolio customization that wasn't possible 20 years ago. So I would say those are the two big uh, things that the rising force of ETFs have done to change the way individual investors invest today. ETFs are interesting because I was reading something the other day that there's actually at some point in time in the last year or two, there was more ETFs going around than there are actual stocks on the general stock exchange. And it just shows how popular that they are. A lot of them are, I think, potentially closing down as well, though. So it, it is evolving that market of ETFs. Yeah, I think in order to run like a profitable ETF, you kind of have to crack through some kind of minimum assets under management threshold, which I think kind of ranges from like 20 to $50 million of assets under management, depending on what your fee structure is and a number of other things. So uh, I, th I do think a lot of ETFs kind of launch and then the ETF issuers, they will just double down on the winners, close down the losers and just focus all the money on marketing the winning ETF. So there's a bit of like spray and pray launch mentality from ETF issuers in that sense. And then I also just think that... Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of ETFs who aren't trying to do anything novel. So we don't really need an incremental S&P 500 ETF. We already have lots of good ones of those. So the, the new ETFs that kind of do well, I think are novel in some way. Have you heard of the Freedom one? It's basically looking at countries where they have policies that make it easy to do business, but also where people are treated, you know, they have more, more freedoms and, and rights. Yeah, so that, that fund is actually, uh, the two people who run it are, are people I know. It's, it's a really interesting ETF and um, super kind of, ex it's a great example of kind of that concept I explained earlier of how ETFs are giving people new uh, exposure to asset classes that they didn't have exposure to in the past. And it also kind of shows, to, to go back to your point from earlier, Ben, about how there's more ETFs than there are individual stocks now. Some people point at that and they say like, oh, that shows some market perversion or that shows that there's problems in the market today. And I actually don't think I agree with that because if you think about any time you have to collect together a permutation of items from a list and combine them into a new thing, there will always be more ways to combine them than there are actual things. One kind of easy to understand example of that would be like, if you go to your pantry where all of your uh, you know cooking ingredients are, you will always be able to find more recipes for your pantry entry than there are individual items in your pantry because there's so many different ways to combine them and mix and match them so etfs are like the recipe and stocks are like the ingredients for that recipe there will always be more ways to combine stocks into etfs than there are ways to just buy one stock so i don't really think that's anything to be concerned about i really like that analogy yeah <laughs> bring a little bit of culinary uh description into the uh investing world you're interested in discussing the future of wealth management could you discuss the behavioral aspects of that yeah so i think kind of with the way that the online brokerage space is evolving and how the behavior of individual investors has changed over time, it's never been easier to be like a DIY investor. You can open up an online brokerage account and get started yourself. It's cheaper and just easier to get started than ever. Now, with that said, 
I also think there's never been a better time to be a bad DIY investor because all of a sudden we have unprecedented access to information. We get all of the news headlines right to our cell phones and with these little computers in our pockets, we can now trade stocks on the fly. So what that means is that people often get scared into making bad decisions in response to news. And I think that's something that all investors should kind of be aware of as they go to manage their own portfolios. I think there's a lot to be said for just deleting your brokerage app off your phone and paying less attention to the news than you think you probably have to. Wise words. Okay, so how is the increasing role of technology in the investment management industry specifically uh, leveraging or assisting with behavior or temperament limitations of humans? I think a big thing to go back to a theme that I've talked about, the more technology gets used in the wealth management industry, the cheaper the whole industry gets for the end consumers, which are the investors. So ETFs are one obvious example. They're kind of have more technology just built into them definitionally because they were launched so much later than mutual funds where I think a lot of mutual fund back offices are probably like pushing a lot of paper and like, you know, still using fax machines. So ETFs just like structurally will always be cheaper. That's largely because of technology. I also think from a portfolio construction point of view, investors now have access to all these tools that they never had access to before that allow them to screen for stocks or ETFs that meet the characteristics that they want to have for their portfolios. So uh, I just think that more technology means cheaper fees and greater customization capabilities for DIY investors. Mm. Do you guys think or talk specifically about temperament in the passive office? Yeah, I mean, we talk about it a lot and we think about it a lot. And to the extent possible, we want to build a platform that kind of discourages bad behavior from investors. So it's definitely something that's always front of mind. Yeah, right. that, that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're, we're bumbling along here in our podcast, trying to, there's all these trading algorithms. There's all of these investing frameworks. Ben and I learned one from a guy at Stanford, but there's never really much about actual temperament. We're doing our bit here. <laughs> okay, so... As discussed by O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, value factor drawdowns tend to end when regulators step in to address the excesses of a technological revolution. Are there any excesses in the finance industry of the latest tech revolution which you think might need regulating and how would passive fare if this happened? Yeah, I think from a regulated point of view, passive is like pretty well positioned right now because we're, we're operative of Canada, so we fall in the Canadian regulatory, uh, I guess, jurisdiction. And we have really strong like one-on-one -on -one relationships with the regulators here. So if we're ever unsure about something, we can just go ask them. So that's a perk of kind of building a company in a rural place is that you get more access to decision makers and government who can help you understand whether what you're doing is right or wrong. So that's really nice. Um, in terms of what needs regulated right now, I think that one thing that's kind of front of mind for investors everywhere is the situation that's going on with GameStop. So for anyone who's listening that's unfamiliar with this is GameStop um, was like one of the most heavily shorted stocks in the stock market. A bunch of investors on a Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets decided to all buy the stock at the same time to drive its price up and try to drive a short squeeze so that, I guess, to the detriment of the short sellers. So it worked. I think the stock went from something like two or four dollars or something up past four hundred dollars and a bunch of short hedge funds kind of went bankrupt because of this. And there's been all kinds of broad repercussions across the market. So um, investors are kind of torn between this because a lot of brokerages uh, restricted trading on GameStop to try to prevent this kind of market manipulation. So on the one hand, people don't like that because they want the freedom to trade what they like. But on the other hand, uh, I think that if they were the, the victims of this kind of activities, then they would be very glad that the 
the regulators and the brokerages kind of stepped in to prevent this behavior. So that's kind of one thing that I've been thinking about lately. I'm not sure what the best uh, solution is. They probably, there's better, uh, more knowledgeable people out there to make those decisions than I am, but it's definitely something that's been kind of front of mind for me. And it's an interesting thought exercise. That yeah, well, I think we've had a few examples in society in, in pretty short succession of excesses driven by the information age, if you like, and sort of the tools that the information age has given us. For example, what happened on Capitol Hill around the U.S. election basically resulted in inquiries by U.S. politicians about the effect of social media on politics. It looks like what's happening with GameStop is going to result in more regulatory attention. So yeah. yeah, I can see, I can definitely see that happening. It's it's still kind of up in the air, but it's uh, front of mind for me. Like I said. Next question relates to index funds, and we all know that index funds are becoming more and more popular. They're becoming more of a larger player in the market. I think in some markets, some areas, index funds represent up to around about 50% of the actual uh, total market cap for an index. How do you see that evolving, and what are also the potential implications if index funds do become more and more, or if passive investing becomes more and more of a a role in the market than active investing. How could that ultimately play out, do you think? Yeah, this is something that people talk about a lot because, uh, you know, passive investing has gained popularity uh, in the last 20, 15 to 20 years in insane magnitudes. So uh, the argument here is basically that active investors kind of provide the service of price discovery for the stock market. So they're the people that bid stocks up and down and kind of ultimately decide what price they trade at. Passive investors follow the lead of active, active investors and if the price goes up, they'll buy more of it. And if the price goes down, they'll sell it. So the argument here is that too much passive investing will cause uh, price swings in the stock market to become more dramatic because they just follow if it goes up or down and they kind of plow into that trade and make the price movements even more severe. So that's kind of the fear. In terms of where we're at and where we're going, that's really hard to say. I will say we will never get to 100% passive investing because we will always need price discovery in the market. I will also say that I don't really think there's a ton of evidence that markets are more volatile with rising passive investors so far. So it's kind of unsure, but those are the schools of thought in terms of what people are worried about when it comes to the rising share of passive investing in the markets today. I think it's interesting because there are, if you do become an active investor, there are opportunities in, in that situation where you could potentially just invest the dividends. So if a small stock is not getting its allocation because it is small from the index funds, but its dividends are outsized, simply dividends to price ratio, then there's an opportunity there to be a, a dividend investor at, at its most basic. Yeah, I mean, whether prices go up or down in a healthy economy, dividends stay the same. So you're right. Carrying on with the idea of active investing, what's an investment that you recently made or decided not to make? And why? Uh, does it have to specifically be an active investment? It can be no, anything. Yeah, so I'll just tell you, like, I guess the, my investment philosophy is kind of like 90% ETFs, 10% stocks. And uh, I'll probably, I guess, talk a little bit about some stocks just because I think that's more interesting for the audience. But just, you know, broadly speaking, philosophically and, and empirically based on evidence, most people are better off buying ETFs, which is why I'm 90% in ETFs. The 10% that's in stocks is mostly just so that I can kind of scratch that itch for myself without blowing up my whole portfolio. So uh, it's kind of like what they call a core and explore portfolio mentality. So uh, the stocks that I do own are all kind of 
biased towards my exposure to the technology industry, just like vocationally. So I'm a software developer. I work for a software company. Software is kind of my life. And it's what I understand the best. It's where I have the best knowledge of industry trends and the best understanding of which players are likely to do well. So I own quite a few software stocks. Uh, my two biggest individual stock holdings, and I say biggest, they're still small components of my overall portfolio, but I think Microsoft and Facebook both have pretty solid business models. Their valuations are reasonable and two things that I guess re I recently added to, but full disclaimer, this is not investment advice of any sort. This <laughs> is just kind of what I'm doing and you're probably better off to just go fully indexed. Sure. When you said that you um, are mainly focused on ETFs, that requires its own due diligence as well, though. Um, so do you do a fair bit of research into the ETF and also what it's what it's got in its portfolio, not specifically at the stock level, but if it's an industry-style ETF, I guess you're doing a bit of due diligence. Yeah, so my uh, ETF portfolio is largely, like you said, based on industries and based on economic views that I have. So I have um, basically... Aside from like my core, just complete diversified ETF holdings, which would be like, you know, an S&P 500 ETF, for example, aside from those, my sector ETFs or my like thematic ETFs are kind of centered around two core themes. One of them was like growth in emerging markets. So I have a broad emerging markets ETF that I own. And I believe I also have a China specific emerging markets ETF that I own. I think that if you just look at where technology is in developed markets versus where technology is in emerging markets, there's got to be faster GDP growth there. And that's got to trickle down to kind of growth of the companies within that economy. So that's kind of one big belief I have. And then another big belief, like I said, when it came to individual stocks, is just the increasing growth of technology businesses and the rising importance of technology in the world today. So uh, one ETF I have is just like a, a broad diversified technology, like global technology ETF. Will, did you have any other questions? Basically, ever since we started this podcast, and I think maybe also because my first degree was psychology, I've been thinking about making an app or how we can use technology, even a website, something to help people maintain or gain and maintain the right temperament as investors. Has there been any discussion amongst you guys at Passive about an app specifically designed to help people with temperament? The closest thing that we've done to focusing specifically on temperament is our goals feature. So the way our goals feature works is that you set an investment goal for your portfolio and then Passive tells you what you need to do behaviorally to meet that goal. So I'll just like provide an example because I think it's easier to understand. You could set the goal of saying, I want to have a million dollars by the time I'm 50. Now, uh, Passive will tell you, you can either select what rate of return you want to get, or you can select what contributions you want to make to your portfolio and we will kind of assign you an average rate of return um, and once that's done passive will kind of calculate the other number for you so you might say i want to have a million dollars when i'm 50 and i want to contribute two thousand dollars a month and we will calculate here's how much return you need to get every year to achieve that or alternatively you might say i want a million dollars when i'm 50 and i think i'm going to return six percent a year how much do i need to contribute and we'll calculate that for you as well once you actually set your goal and save it uh, you have kind of have a dashboard that will show you your progress towards that goal over time. Great. So the it's prompting the behavior that it prompts is repetitive financial contributions and it tracks those having occurred. Yeah, exactly. And you can do you know monthly contributions, biweekly, weekly, whatever's easiest for you. Yeah. Okay. And obviously you can't be blamed for this because it's a financial app. So the it's all about tracking 
financial performance for you. But what about you could ask the person how they're feeling? Oh, in terms of actually getting like some emotional connection. Yeah. Honestly, I, I'm just brainstorming. <laughs> it's the first time we've had a software developer on and I've been wanting to basically develop this app myself. So I'm taking the opportunity to <laughs> talk yeah. with you. Right? But like, how, how would a software development team approach the quote from Warren Buffett that everyone talks about and how it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, once you've got 120 IQ, having more isn't going to make you a better investor. You've got to have temperament. So what would a software development team do to produce an app to have optimal investor temperament? Yeah, so we've actually joked about making an app called uh, Passive Hardcore or Passive, you know, strict, strict version of Passive or something like that. And what that app would have was you don't actually see any of your holdings in your portfolio. You don't see what your gains or losses are and you don't see your performance. All that you see is your portfolio accuracy and whether or not you need to rebalance. So instead of logging in and seeing like all this red when the market's going down or something, you would just log in and you just can see whether or not you need to rebalance. You don't even see your account values. Or Perfect. So, so what you're doing is you're removing the prompts that people get, for example, through their excessive engagement with these apps like Robinhood with all of its confetti or the news, which is basically biased towards generating fear because that's another way to have people engage. So you're, you're talking about there removing these uh, prompts that cause engagement, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of senses, the, the least amount of engagement you can have in an investing app, the better the investor is. Maybe not the better the platform is, but maybe it's better for the investor. So that's kind of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, we're at a key key issue here, aren't we? I think it isn't the story that's going around about Facebook, basically, that the reason it's such a good, good business is it's a whole bunch of engagement hacks. It's essentially an attention harvester. Yeah, I mean, Facebook's growth hacking team is kind of, known for being um, insanely focused on driving engagement. So I think you're yeah. probably right, yeah. And I guess what would be great is if there could be a successful software development company in the finance space that doesn't depend on achieving 100% engagement at all costs, including its client's lack of sleep, but still is able to make money and perform the service of causing people's wealth to increase. Exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to achieve. Okay. Yeah, that's great to hear. All right. Well, if we'll, we'll if that's that's all you wanted to cover. Um, just, Not at all. I've got more questions. <laughs> well, I'm just getting started. <laughs> I was going to give Nick the opportunity just to say um, how people can get access to Passive and how they can find him or get in touch if need be. Yeah. So our website is passive.com. That's P-A-S-S-I-V.com. There's no E on the end of Passive. Uh, and if you want, you know, have specific product questions, or if you'd like to get a demo, just send me a direct email. My email is nick.mccullum at passive.com. And you're on Twitter too, right? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. My handle is Nick J. McCullum, and our company handle is at Passive Team. Cool. Good stuff. Thanks again for having me on, guys.